understanding that you can change and you can evolve over time and just to live life with some grace and live, give yourself understanding for things that may not go right the first time. And I feel like that in itself can help make change. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. My name is John Zimmerman. I'm the founder of the Active Towns Initiative, and I'm truly honored to serve as your host each week on this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Friday, August 6th, 2021. And in this week's episode, I'm delighted to share this marvelous conversation I recently had with Dr. Jennifer Roberts, Associate Professor at the University of Maryland in the Kinesiology Department within the School of Public Health. Among other things, we talk about the classes she teaches, both at the undergraduate and graduate levels, the research she's conducting, as well as the Nature RX initiative she launched on campus. But before we roll into those discussions, please allow me this brief moment to mention that this episode is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. And a huge shout out to Cindy J for your contribution earlier this week. Now, if you too are able to make a donation, please head over to my website at activetowns.org and simply navigate to the donation page. And another way each of you can help out is by spreading the word about Active Towns and this podcast within your personal and professional networks. Thank you all so much for tuning in and for whatever support you're able to provide as I strive to grow this movement to create a culture of activity. One last thing before we get started. I'd be honored if you'd subscribe to, follow, rate, and review the Active Towns podcast on your preferred listening platform, as this helps connect others to this content. And be sure to check out and subscribe to the Active Towns YouTube channel, as I'm now posting new original content out there weekly. Thanks. Okay, time to get this conversation with Professor Jennifer Roberts rolling. Jen, it's so wonderful to connect with you here today. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. Thank you, John. I'm really excited to be here and I appreciate the invitation. Absolutely. Well, hey, first of all, thank you so very much for allowing me to briefly interrupt your vacation. You are so gracious. <laughs> well, you know, I try to be on vacation mode as much as I can, but sometimes I just get stuck in there. And I don't think I'm a purist in vacation. Like, I don't think I'll ever be a purist, like a, as a retiree. Like I always will have my toe into doing something. So yeah. 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 <laughs> well, and if you're like me and, and my partner, Laura, we're, we're so passionate about this area of study in this field that, you know, even when we're on vacation and visiting another country, for instance, or another town here in North America, mm -hmm. we're, we're always like snapping photos of urbanism and active mobility stuff. And so, yeah, yeah. yeah so sometimes yeah. it's hard to tune it, turn it off. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, when it's such a part of you, it is hard to just turn it off. Yeah. 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 It's good. Well, hey, let's do this. Why don't you uh, share with the audience just a little bit about yourself, what your background and, and how it is you came to be studying in this area that you're so passionate about? Okay. I kind of came about it in a very nonlinear way. My formal training in a nutshell is like environmental health science. All of my graduate level education were in schools of public health. So I got my master's of public health and environmental health um, from Emory University and then my doctorate in public health, which specialized in environmental health science from Johns Hopkins. And I did a lot with risk assessment work, looking at exposure assessment to toxicants, whether it's in the air or water. And at my master's level, I did a little bit of looking at built environment, but I kind of veered off of that and started to look more about um, issues with toxins and toxicants in our environment. And so after I graduated, I actually was an um, environmental health consultant for nearly six years at two different firms, one in the San Francisco area and then one in the Chicago area. And after about six years, I kind of wanted to revisit the built environment area of research based on professional as well as personal reasons from living in these two different environments, one in the 
Bay Area where I had this long commute of like almost two hours one way and it just wasn't the best for my health and well-being. And then when I moved to the Chicago area, my commute was like 15 minutes. I lived in a very walkable area. And at the time, I wasn't thinking like, gee, my built environment has changed. I just realized things were different. I was walking more. My dog was actually getting a real walk. (laughs) And I became more enchanted with this whole idea of exploring how the environment of where I live, how it's walkable, how it can increase my mobility. And so I wanted to explore that. And I thought one of the best ways to do that was to go into academia. So I jumped out of consulting, went into academia, and I've been doing that ever since for, I guess you could say around since 2011. And so I've kind of just broadened my my sphere to look at myself as a public health, still researcher, but looking at it more broadly as active living and how our impacts of our built and our social and our natural environments really um, can impact our health and well-being. Yeah, yeah. No, I hear you. So now you and I have never met, mm-hmm. not, not in person. We're, no. <laughs> we're meeting a video via video uh, feed right now. But right. I feel as if we're kindred spirits. Yes. Uh, given the focus of your work, mm-hmm. and we have some uh, a few mutual connections, including Charles T. Brown of Rutgers and mm-hmm. Kelly Rogers, the executive director of Street Smart, mm-hmm. both of whom, by the way, were were guests here on the Active Towns podcast last year. And uh, but the really the reason why I reached out to you was because I kept seeing notes of congratulations pouring in on my <laughs> LinkedIn feed. So what was all that congratulations about? Well, um, that congratulations. Well, so I was recently promoted and tenured. So I'm at the University of Maryland. I started there as an assistant professor in 2015. And anyone who's familiar with the tenure track process, pretty much by by the time you get to your sixth year, you go up and you pretty much present all the work you've been doing. I always joke, say all the work you've been doing since kindergarten. It feels like that, but it's pretty much all of the work, just the whole compilation of all of your scholarship and um, you present that as a case to receive tenure and because it's coupled at the University of Maryland meaning you get promoted and tenured at the same time that was what all the congratulations was about and so after that year-long process of waiting hearing going through all the committees and their voting I finally found out mm, end of May Officially, first week of June, I think, something like that. And so that was what the congratulations were for. (laughs) Yes. And I will say it once again. Congratulations. Thank you, John. (laughs) Thank you. Now, so tenure at a major university is a big deal. It's a very big deal. Mm -hmm. And I would say, especially given our area of study and area of interest, what's your take on that significance? Uh, it, yeah, it is. It is pretty significant. It's significant for multiple reasons. So where I'm situated, like I said, I'm, I, well, I didn't know if I mentioned this. I'm actually in the School of Public Health at the University of Maryland College Park, which is the flagship institution of the University of Maryland system. Within the School of Public Health, I'm actually in a department of kinesiology. And so I'm kind of like a little bit of the odd duck in the Department of Kinesiology, kinesiology, everyone's like, what is that? I'm like, well, it's just the study of movement. The study, I I used to say the study of human movement, but then I discovered there's actually people who do kinesiology of like in the veterinarian sphere to look at animal movement. So now I just say movement (laughs) because I don't want to, I don't want to um, exclude our cats and dogs and our other four-legged friends. So just the study of movement. And so there's folks in my department who do exercise physiology. So just pretty much to see how efficient our systems are to do those movements. Biomechanics, to see how our bones can withstand these movements. And so I kind of, I do physical activity in the sense that I focus on our ability to be mobile, whether we're recreational or whether we're active transit. But I also look at the environments that can either encourage or discourage our ability to be active. And so that's kind of how I fit. And so back when I applied for this position, the uh, chairman actually was really looking for someone who focused on built environment. He really wanted to broaden that within the department and have that be another flavor 
of the department. And so I'm the only person who does not have a formal degree in kinesiology within the department. But on the converse, I'm the only person who has formal education in public health. So it's kind of like a perfect, you know, quid pro quo type of relationship. And the more work I do, I think the more my colleagues see how I fit within the department. And so that's why it was also a big deal because of the fact that I'm probably not your traditional kinesiologist or um, biomechanics specialist um, to receive tenure within that department. And then also for another other reasons in terms of being a woman of color, specifically African-American woman, uh, receiving tenure in the School of Public Health, I think well, the school's fairly young. It's about a little over 10 years old, but um, I'm now the, I believe, the third African-American woman. There was one last year and then the year before. And so that's another thing that's, you know, of, of um, to make it something, the moment, a little bit more special. And it's interesting because on the one hand, I do appreciate the idea of being the first, but also the, I don't like the idea of being the first because it talk, it speaks to so many other issues behind why I am the first. So there's a whole slew of reasons why tenure is such a big deal. And as my colleagues like to joke when I was, you know, granted tenureship, they're like, oh, now you have job security. <laughs> so in essence, you know, Maryland stuck with me until I retire, so to speak. Fantastic. That's great. Well, and I, I, I will also interject and say it, it, it really warmed my heart when I saw those congratulations coming over. And, and then I dug a little deeper into, into who you were and your profile. And I'm like, I love this woman. <laughs> it's like, she, it's, I, I'm a little older than you. I'm a, a, about a decade older than you. And so when I was working on my master's degree at the University of Michigan, I was blending. I was based out of the kinesiology department, but then I did a third of my coursework in the MBA program, the school business, and a third of my coursework in the school of public health. I knew I wanted my career to go into health promotion, disease prevention, mm -hmm. uh, and, and my setting was essentially the corporate environment. I wanted to build health promotion programs and, and disease prevention programs uh, within corporate environments for large self-insured employers like IBM and Motorola and, and many of those others. And so uh, I, I was just like, yes, <laughs> she's like blending the public health and the kinesiology. And, and even my undergraduate was in exercise physiology. So okay. I had that hardcore physiology, kinesiology, sciences background. And then I overlaid, uh, you know, the public health and the health behavior stuff and looking at the psychology of, well, what really helps motivate people to live a healthy, active lifestyle. Right. And it doesn't take long for us to <laughs> realize that, oh, gee, your environment is incredibly important as to whether you will choose to walk and bike for utilitarian purposes, let alone for recreational purposes. Yes, that is very, that's, well, you were at the perfect institution to do that blending. It's funny. My last flight was actually to Ann Arbor. I had to give a talk there. And I actually was seeing your new, the new School of Kinesiology, a new building being built. But I was thinking, I love this campus. I'm just going to keep walking forever. And so I really thought that was a really great experience. It's funny, I had no idea what was on the other side in a couple of weeks in terms of the whole world shutting down. But it was really interesting to see, you know, the walkability of the campus, but also, you know, having the blend of, I went to the public health school and then I was at the School of Kinesiology. So you were at the perfect institution to do all that blending. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll make a, a, an admission here, uh, one that I've never admitted to on, on the uh, Active Towns podcast. It's, I, I ended up at, uh, at Ann Arbor and at the University of Michigan um, solely based on how I liked Ann Arbor. <laughs> <laughs> I had actually uh, packed up my, my, my vehicle from Southern California when I had graduated with my, uh, my undergraduate degree from the University of Southern California and, and drove cross country, having been accepted at U of M and also at Ohio State University and also at Penn State University. Okay. Well, I stopped off in Columbus and was just like, yeah, yeah I'm not really all that thrilled. Yeah, professors mm -hmm. are okay. But then I, my next stop along the line as I was driving, you know, making my way across the country uh, was to Ann Arbor. 
suffice it to say, I never made it to Penn State. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was so enamored by Ann Arbor and the walkability of it. And mm-hmm. and I didn't think of it in those terms because I wasn't right. thinking urbanism. I wasn't thinking walkability and bikeability and stuff like that yet. Uh, that was decades later, you know, or a decade or so later before I started really tuning into the built environment in that way. Right. But it just felt right. It, yes. it was like the, 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 you know, the college town, it was the quintessential college town mm-hmm. that just hugged you and said, it did. yeah, perfect yeah. way of putting it. It does hug you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Good stuff. So when you look at this, this, you know, career path that you're on and the types of work that you're doing. So I'm assuming you're, you're, you're teaching students, but you're also doing research. So l- let's address both of those. Okay. Uh, when, when, in the context of teaching students, what are the types of things you're working with and, and, and what you're teaching them? So the, the courses that I teach, I teach undergraduate students and I teach graduate students. And the courses I teach for the graduate students are primarily for our master of public health students. So there's like this class, it's called like Foundations of Kinesiology. And it really is just, I'm kind of changed it actually, quite frankly, this summer to be more reflective of some of the current events in terms of issues with transit equity, equity and just other issues re- surrounding features of our environment, but also how our social environment influences our built environment and access to those built environments as well as natural environments. But it's really a class to kind of introduce students to how there's a marriage between kinesiology and public health. And that's kind of important because the traditional pillars of public health do, do, um, do not include kinesiology. So you have like your environmental health, epidemiology, biostatistics, behavioral health policy. I think those are the main ones. Um, but kinesiology is not one. And so when the school started, one of the agreements was, well, we're going to have kinesiology and family science in the School of Public Health. And so everyone's like, okay, but it fits. And so the idea is to show the students how there's a nice marriage between public health um, and kinesiology. And then also to discuss a lot of the different specializations of kinesiology. Then the other course is really just epidemiology of physical activity. It's just your basic bare bones on looking at the epidemiology of impacts when you're not physically active, but also looking at how we measure physical activity, how we measure those outcomes, whether it's obesity, whether it's cardiovascular disease, and kind of critically looking at beyond just the measurement of the individual, um, looking at the environment. So are you measuring physical activity of an individual who is in an environment where there's no sidewalks, there's no tree canopy, there's no parks, and just saying, oh, they have a low physical activity, no low walking, uh, or are you considering all of the aspects? And then for my undergraduates, I teach a class that I call it zip code. It's prediction on physical activity and health. And again, that really delves in a little bit more deeply about how our neighborhoods and where we live are much stronger predictors of our health, our life expectancy, our well-being, our um, opportunities in life than the genetic code. And so the students really like that because these are students in their senior year who've been taking like really, you know, all the labs and all the specifics of kinesiology. And now they're starting to look at things a little bit differently uh, because a lot of students have a very, I don't want to say myopic, but they think, oh, we'll just give them a treadmill or, oh, just give them some sneakers and they'll go walk. And, you know, I always give them an example of like, you know, do we remember Trayvon Martin? He was walking. Presumably he had sidewalks. Um, He was walking in his neighborhood, but his social environment made it such that it wasn't safe for him to complete his journey. And so I start to challenge their way of thinking in terms of um, looking at one's ability to be physically active. So those are like the three classes. And I try to really infuse my research in those in those courses so that there's a context. And so there's a, a good kind of connection between my research as well as the uh, the courses that I teach. And it's nice because a lot of students, after they take my class, they, you know, they may ask to be part of my Phoebe lab um, or work with me on some of my research projects because I've kind of, you know, incited some type of interest that they didn't know that they had. Or I've had actually some students, I have one student in particular, which is really interesting. After she took my course, she was like, I was going to go to PT school, 
but actually I'm going to apply to the master's program of landscape architecture. She's like, is that crazy? I was like, no, that's awesome. I was like, you're going to learn about, I told her the bugs and the plants and (laughs) the flowers, but you're going to bring your background, your public health background, your background of the, of the body. So you have a better understanding of the embodiment of within these spaces. And so it will be a wonderful blend between what you're bringing and with what you'll be learning. And so she's actually finishing up her second year of her MLA. So it's nice to be able to um, give students another, you know, look at things. And many do still continue on to occupational therapy or PT school, um, but they are able to look at it with a different context. Yeah. You mentioned determine there, and I'll, I'll come back to that in just a second. But I did want to reflect back to you that I'm glad you sort of uh, identified, you know, sort of the traditional public health areas of study, and 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 and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, when we think about you know the the public health realm, especially when it, when you think about it from the built environment perspective, it almost always you know sort of focuses on the, those environmental factors and how public health really assisted in in helping us create safer, more healthful environments, uh, especially when we look back, you know, uh, you know, 100 years, 200 years ago, and you think about some of the things that we had challenges, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of like, you know, cholera outbreaks and things of that nature. And right. so we know so much more. But the insidious part about it is that we ended up changing our land use plans or patterns. So we, we swung the pendulum so far mm-hmm. into the other direction that we we end up having everything teased apart and, and so far away. So exactly the opposite of that Ann Arbor environment where everything was in walkable, bikeable distances. Right. Now we have land use patterns where... Yeah, that's true. We don't have the tannery next door anymore, you know, creating, <laughs> you know, a, a, a pollution problem. But, you know, now, you know, you, you can't walk to the corner store for a carton of milk or something. Right. And the other thing that made me think of, too, is you're right. I was incredibly lucky at the University of Michigan because the most of the classes that I took in the School of Public Health um, revolved around uh, the psychology of health behavior change. Mm-hmm. And so Marshall Becker was there at the time and the health belief model and the, the psychology behind uh, behavior change and, and how that's so I- incredible. And and uh, it's so wonderful to hear that that's what you're kind of teaching with that mm-hmm. zip code class because, you, yeah, once you have the science down, that's one side of it. But how do you actually get people to <laughs> encourage people and promote people to to change their behavior? That's right. the hard part. Yeah, definitely. So, definitely. Yeah. So you threw a term in there. So I'm going to um, have you explain what that is. You said the Phoebe Laboratory. So that's your public health outcomes and effects of the built environment laboratory. Right. Talk a little bit about that. What's going on there? So I, you know, it's interesting. I wanted to come up with an umbrella term hence Phoebe Laboratory, to really encapsulate all of my scholarship and all of my work. I don't have a quote-unquote wet lab like many of my colleagues in the Department of Kinesiology do, but I have lab work in the sense that I have multiple studies. And so I wanted to kind of have this kind of umbrella term to just talk about all of those things that I do, whether it's my uh, my plate study or my gent study or even the work that I do with Nature Rx, I wanted to kind of have this umbrella term to talk about it. And now I have students who say, can I work in the Phoebe lab? So it just kind of, as opposed to you may say, oh, can I work with Dr. Roberts? And they'll be like, okay, do you want to work? Do you want to work with me on my research? You want to, you know, so it kind of just brings it all together and it gives some type of identity. And so that's why I was playing around. It's funny because years ago, I met a colleague whose his name is Andrew Karansky, and his lab was called the Beach Lab. It's called Built Environment and Active Play. No, Built, no, Built Environment and Community Health. That's what it was, Beach, Beach Lab. And I was so like envious of like, oh my goodness, I have to come up with a lab name. That is so clever. So I went home and I was thinking and I was like, I want something with public health in it. And then I literally said, how many words have PH in it? 
And then I said, do I want it in the middle of the word, the end? And so I just started playing around. I said, well, I do want it to have built environment. And I said, what words have a PH and a BE in it? And it sounds kind of crazy, but I think there was like a Friends episode on. And I was like, Phoebe. And I literally was, and I was like, okay, I need an O. So I literally just was playing with the, with the letters and the words. And I said, this will fit. And so that's how it came up with the Phoebe Laboratory. And it really just kind of gives us a little bit of an identity of all the, of the projects that we do yeah. um, re- related to built environment. That's good stuff. Well, I'm going to challenge you on saying that you don't have a wet lab. I would say you do have a wet lab. <laughs> it's it's called the outdoors. I mean, it, it, you step outside into your built environment. And I'm sure that a lot of the stuff that you do with your students and interacting, especially with the graduate students, is encouraging. Get out into your into your community and into your neighborhood and see what this feels like. And, mm-hmm. and you know, so... And if it happens to be raining, it's definitely a wet lab. Yeah, it, 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 it sure is. It's interesting you say that because right before the pandemic, I did have my students going out. So I have a study. Um, I call it the plight study. It's the purple line impact on neighborhood health and transit. And that's really looking at how this new light rail line that's coming in, it's going to be going through two counties, the east-west line, our first light rail line in the Washington, D.C. I'll say our first major light rail line um, in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. And one of the counties that it's going through is Prince George's County. And so I wanted to get really perspectives from the residents on how they were feeling about this light rail line. And I initially started with trying to do focus groups and, you know, recruiting people. But my focus groups were very, had a very homogeneous population. Like I had some with just all women. <laughs> or I had some with like all African And I was like, I, I need, like Prince George's County is one of the most heterogeneous counties. So I'm like, where are these people? And I did know that people are, re- are kind of reluctant sometimes to participate in research, particularly if, you know, you're asking for their name or, you know, just the residents. And so I was reading this journal article and this research group in Hawaii, they wanted to see the impact of wayfinding signs for this new bike, biking trail. So they just had people stand along the trail and just ask people. And I said, this is what I should do. So I had students go out to the various transit stops. So part of the purple line will run parallel along some of the existing stops of the bus. So where those stops were, I had students go out and while people were waiting for the bus, you know, we had an audio recorder. We, you know, our IRB approval let us, you know, just be able to ask people, do you want to do this? And pretty much they would say yes. And if they said yes on the audio, that was pretty much the giving the, the go ahead to audio record. And then we would ask people and we would talk to them until their bus came. And people were very forthcoming. You know, people would say, well, I'm afraid that, you know, it's going to come and my rent may go up because I heard that happen sometimes. Or some people were like, I'm glad it's coming because I'll have another option for transportation. So we had all these different kinds of inputs from people just giving like their full, you know, uncensored opinions. And it was nice because we told people, you know, we don't, you don't have to tell us your name unless you want to. We just want to know if you are, do you live in this county and are you over 18? And people were just willing. I remember one woman, she said, I'll wait to the next bus. I want to keep talking to you guys. So it was really nice to get all this audio. And so I guess in a way you can't say we are a wet lab because there was a time where it started to rain and we had to all go into the bus shelter. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. So on this line, uh, when when is implementation and and because uh, or, or what's the status on on the study and on the line? Well, it was supposed to start operation uh, 2022. They were already delayed pre-pandemic. So now there's talk that some of the stops will begin operating at the end of 2022 and the rest of the line will operate in 2023. And some of the, when I say some of the stops, I mean the some of the stops, if not all of the stops in Prince George's County. So there will be a total of about 22 stops, 11 in Prince George's County and then the other 11 
in Montgomery County. And it's interesting because there's been different pushback for different reasons in both counties. So actually, Montgomery County actually sued to um, stop the construction of the line, actually to stop the whole project. I understand some of the argument in the sense that the purple line actually will now run along part of the Georgetown Trail. So you had residents saying, I don't want, A, I don't want the sound of this line in my backyard because the trail goes along some of the residential areas in their backyard. They're like, I don't, want the, I don't want the line in my backyard. And then you have people who use the trail saying, I don't want a line along the trail. So there was a lot of pushback. And then also there had to be some trees cut down, even though the uh, developers of the Purple Line say they're going to replace those trees once the line is complete. So... I definitely see both arguments, you know, in the sense that, oh, so you're, you know, destroying this natural environment so that you can improve our built environment going back and forth. Prince George's County side, people are saying, well, this will be great because now we'll be able to have a more efficient way to get into the District of Columbia. Before it was so hard to go on the, if you wanted to go into D.C., you had to get on this heavy rail line, which would be an hour long because it was like going around a full circle. And it, it was just a longer route as opposed to now I can get, you know, a places more efficiently. So there's arguments on both sides. And that's kind of what I wanted to get out from people when I was, you know, doing these kind of transit stop interviews. Um, but the, the goal, I guess, to have the full completion is 2023 to have the full completion of the of the full line. Yeah, yeah. And specifically, some of the things that you're looking at, um, I think you're you're studying like the impact on physical activity levels, because we know that having access to high quality transit, uh, you know, encourages more active mobility, Mm -hmm. more walking to uh, destinations. Is that correct? That is correct. And particularly, so that's the beauty of a light rail line, because unlike bus stops and unlike heavy rail, uh, the Light rail is, and particularly this one that's being built, each stop is going to be, well, not each, but a good portion of the stops are going to be kind of enclosed within a transit-oriented development. So there's more shops, there's, there's some housing, there's businesses. And so there's places to walk to once you get off the stop. Also, the, the stops on a light rail line typically are much um, more further spaced apart. So it encourages people to walk a little bit more. I don't know if you ever ridden a bus where you'll be like, I can almost see the next bus stop, you know, because they're so close together. But with a light rail line, they're much further apart. But with the transit-oriented development, it encourages people to just kind of walk a little bit further. Um, and so research has shown that when you bring in a light rail line, we've seen this in Portland, we've seen this in, I can't remember which city of North Carolina, I'm blinking right now, um, Charlotte. We've seen this in Charlotte. We've seen this, I believe, in Las Vegas. We've seen where these light rail lines that have come in, it's actually encouraged people to use them and hence be more physically active. Some research has shown that it's not necessarily a net gain. So some folks will say, hey, <laughs> after I got off the light rail, I walked, you know, to X, Y, Z. So now I'm not going to do that you know, yoga class later, or no, I'm not going to do that Zumba class later. So it's not always a net increase. For some people, it is. And so they've seen that and they've they've seen people who live close to there, they actually have a lower risk of obesity. Now there's the other side, the unintended consequences. So we've seen transit-induced gentrification, specifically with light rail line. And so my gent study, that's another thing that I'm actually looking at to see if during this construction period, if we're seeing people who are experiencing this and if we're seeing if they're or if they're perceiving this, I should say, if they're perceiving that there's a, a displacement, whether it's business or displacement, whether it's residential or even it may not be a physical displacement, a cultural displacement. So if we're seeing people say, well, you know, it used to be Little John's Bakery, but now it's Panera. Or it used to be, you know, gents cleaners, but now it's, you know, some chain. And so if we're seeing these types of things that no longer reflect the personality of the community, and the reason why I say this is because one of the largest communities within the county is called Langley Park. It's probably 99% um, Latinx. It's a very, very um, 
culturally diverse within the Latin community area, but it's also has very um, high rates of poverty. And so that puts them at a vulnerable state. Um, I actually, not last summer, but the summer before, went to a Hispanic festival where um, I started to talk about the research study. And there was one gentleman saying that his rent already like increased 50% because people are knowing, oh, this purple line is coming. So more people are attracted because they want to live near this purple line because they're like, hey, I can, I don't have to use my car now. And so it causes people to kind of move to the area. And sometimes you have this kind of gentrification that happens where people who were already living in the area, they can no longer afford to live there because they're priced out because of their rent or they're priced out because of the taxes are increasing. So there's all these different dynamics that are unintended consequences that can occur because of these light rail lines that are coming in. So I'm looking at both pieces, the, the, the side of the physical activity, see if it increases and if health, you know, um, improves. But I'm also looking at the other side to see if there if we're at risk of any of this um, transit-induced gentrification. Yeah. Well, and we know when we see more amenities coming in, especially into areas that are historically uh, underinvested in, mm-hmm. you know, we, we see that uh, ability, the infusion of capital, the infusion of energy. And so we do have gentrification that happens in the best sense of the word of the fact that, you know, there there's businesses that, you know, get improved and houses get improved. Mm -hmm. What we have to do is make sure that we're cognizant of the fact that that gentrification, that natural renewal, because that's a natural cycle when you think of it. Yes. When you step back and think of an urban environment, you know, that part of the gentrification and, and, and really the enhancement of neighborhoods you have to have it because if it just keeps going down, 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 and down, then it's then you know nobody wants that, right? Uh, because that'll also drive people out. Yeah, that, that also causes displacement, and we've seen this in Detroit and many other places where right. the neighborhoods just really spiral down, mm-hmm. and, and even Baltimore, for that matter, in your neck of the woods there. However, when we do see these enhancements and these improvements in amenities, you know, within neighborhoods such as this, uh, you, you have to counter that that good gentrification that's happening with an anti-displacement, you know, policies and, mm-hmm. and things of that nature to, you know, help people who want to stay have that ability to stay. Exactly. Just a matter of it's just a matter of smart growth. Smart, pre-planned kind of growth. And like you said, actively looking to make sure that all those um, policies and practices are in place so that every step is done in such a way that there's not these unintended consequences. And we see this happening in communities uh, around the country and really around the globe. We do. Even even in uh, you know predominantly white, privileged neighborhoods where maybe elderly are living, they're right. on a fixed income, mm-hmm. and suddenly you know their their house that they maybe you know paid sixty thousand dollars for you know generations ago or you know decades ago now is worth over a million dollars, and and you know they also can be experiencing because you mentioned mm-hmm. you know property taxes and things. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that you said there that that really piqued my interest was you were talking about the catchment area of these transit stops and how it encourages active mobility and things of Mm -hmm. that nature. One of the most fascinating interviews that I had last year was with Roland Kaher from uh, the Netherlands. And we were talking about the magic synergistic relationship that the train system, the transit system uh, there in the Netherlands has with the overlay of the bicycle network Mm -hmm. and how that really just expands the, uh, the, the catchment area of each and every transit stop. Because suddenly, you know, you're able to see a, a ninefold increase in the in the catchment area because, you know, folks will be able to jump on a bike, ride to the the, the transit stop. There's a safe and inviting place for them to to park their bike, right. jump on transit, go to their stop. 
if their ultimate destination isn't within walking distance uh, from the transit stop that they get off of, there's frequently a bike share right. <laughs> station there. And so they can check out a bike and, and ride to their ultimate destination and have that bike assigned to them for the day. Uh, to be able to use for multiple short trips and things of that nature. And so it just really, I think from North America, that's one of the areas that gets me really excited is when we see some of this light rail stuff and some of these transit is to also understand if we can have that overlay of making our communities that much more welcoming mm -hmm. to, to cycling, to meaningful destinations like a transit stop. Yes. Uh, all the better. I I completely agree. I completely agree. I mean, uh, in this country, I mean, we've we have just been in love with our cars since I, I would say probably since World War II, when more and more people could afford a car, at least one. Actually, around that time, the, many households were starting to afford two cars. We just became so in love, and then. In the 50s and 60s with the urban renewal, now we got these wonderful highways that we can just go. So we just love our cars. And so if we could get back to the, the period where, you know, things were not these sprawling suburbs where we had these networks where people could walk to different amenities and walk to, you know, just walk. <laughs> um, and as, as opposed to this habitual passive transportation that we always do, you know, where I live, you know, I sometimes have to turn the car on to make sure, you know, so the gas just doesn't sit there because I can just go for a long time without using my car. And I, I live in an area where I can go to the grocery store. I can go to all these different places and I don't have to actually use a car. And so I, I would like for us in North America to get to that point again. And I know there's cities that are much more resistant to that than others. I remember a couple of years ago, there was the, one of the essays in the 1619 Project. I don't remember the title exactly, I'm paraphrasing, but I remember it said something like, you would never guess how slavery is related to the Atlanta's traffic problem or Atlanta's traffic jams. And it really is just a resistance of them of improving their transportation infrastructure so that they can have a, you know, a, a light rail or something so that people don't have to always to be so tethered to these personal vehicles. Um, and, and it's interesting because you'll have some cities like Portland, they're like, there we have like a little baby Amsterdam there. <laughs> you're just biking. And then there's some cities are like, no, you just you got to stick with the car. So it's interesting because I do think that there's resistance and not under, always understanding that resistance. But I think the more we can really try to embrace this whole idea of having these active living type of communities that it really will benefit in so many ways, not only our personal health, the community health, the environment, so many aspects that it will, you know, will benefit. And we're not saying you have to get rid of your car completely, but just think about it. You know, if something is like half mile long, it's really not that long if you start to walk. Because I know there's another research that if you see when people are not as walkable, certain destinations or distances seem so much longer and arduous versus people who are much more walkable. You know, if you tell me it's three miles, I'm like, okay, let's go. Some people might say, oh, that's just too long, you know, but if you start walking, you'll say, oh, that really wasn't that bad. I've done it before. And so I think the more we kind of get back, it's almost literally like getting back on that bike. You don't forget how to do it. You know, we can start to become much more of an active commuting, active walking, active for recreational. You know, that back in the day after supper, we used to go for a family walk, just doing those types of things so that we're not always in front of these screens and we're not always sedentary, but we could just be more active. But our environments have to promote that as well or encourage that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it has to it has to be safe. It has to be inviting. And and it has to also be interesting, too, because you yeah. mentioned you had mentioned that, you know, it's like 
if you're in an interesting environment, you, you know, next thing you know, you've you've walked a mile or two miles or yes. three miles. And mm-hmm. you're like, wow, I didn't even realize that. You, if you happen to have a, a smartphone that, you know, or a smart watch that counts your number of steps, you look at your number of steps and say, wow, you know, hit that 10,000 mark and yeah. didn't even think about it. Um, and that's what I love about this type of of situation, you know, when we talk about transit, especially high quality transit that really encourages people, it spreads out that catchment area. That's what I love about uh, attractive environments that encourage people to to walk to the corner store or walk to the restaurant or mm-hmm. walk to the, you know, a, a full on grocery store uh, or bike ride for that matter, is that it, it, it creates that ability to encourage healthy, active, natural movement. Yes. You know, versus having to, like you said earlier, having to like plan out your exercise and your workout routine. And that's what's really, really wonderful about the built environment and activity connection is that if we can sneak in low to moderate levels of physical activity without people thinking, oh, I'm getting a workout in. No, it's just I'm going about my daily routine, uh, it's all the better because, you know, when we really step back and we look at it from a genetic perspective and what the human body is really designed to do, it's designed to be, you know, active and move. Mm -hmm. And it's very unnatural for us to be in front of those screens and be sitting all day long. And so having sneakily (laughs) designed in physical activity because we've created an environment which encourages healthy, active living all the better. So I I wanted to make sure we we, addressed that because uh, ultimately I would say that, uh, you know, this is many years later. I'm an exercise physiologist originally and, and an athlete too. But at the same time, I'm like, Hey, from a public health perspective, I'd rather have a built environment that encourages everybody to get in lower levels, but lots of it. Yeah. Physical activity. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I I completely agree. Completely agree. Now, one of the other things that you're involved with, uh, and you sort of mentioned it in passing about nature. So you've got the Nature RX. Talk a little bit about what that's all about. Sure. So it's interesting because... So my scholarship, it it's kind of has this evolution. It started where if you would have asked me probably like four or five years ago, I probably would have said, oh, my research scholarship has to do with impacts of the built environment on our ability to be active. Then it evolved to be like, oh, I, I kind of forgot about the social environment. So, you know, you can have sidewalks and lighting and everything, but if you don't feel safe, so there's a social environment. Then it kind of evolved to talk more about this natural environment in the sense that Built environment is only as good as as much as we protect our natural environment. I don't I don't want complete neighborhoods. I want to keep some green space and I want to keep, you know, enough greenery and tree canopy and all these other things. And so it kind of involved to include all of these environments. And a couple of years ago, I started to look at the whole idea of park prescription and doing looking at some of the research around that. There was a uh, Dr. Robert Zyre, who's um, out of the Washington, D.C. area as a pediatrician. And he started actually writing prescriptions to his pediatric patients because he got tired of just like writing the same kind of um, therapies in terms of let me write your prescription for this, you know, if you have anxiety or if you have, you know, maybe you're um, pre-diabetic. And so he started to ask them, he's like, do you like to go outside? What do you like to do when you're outside? What's your favorite park? So he started to write these park prescriptions. And I always thought that was really interesting in terms of this movement that he perpetuated. And then a colleague of mine was telling me, you know, there's these campus movements called Nature RX. A lot of campuses are kind of like trying to take a little bit of that Park RX and putting on the campus, particularly so many campuses are just have been deemed arboretums. So let's encourage the student community and the faculty and staff to go out to these, you know, camp spaces. And so I met well, online a colleague at Cornell who created Nature RX at Cornell. And his, his name is Don Raykow. 
and he's a horticulturist. And I said, I'm going to just take your whole program and literally just plagiarize the whole program. He was like, sure. I'm like, I'll change it to NatureRx at UMD, but it's going to be like just like yours. He's like, this is what I want. And so uh, my colleague Shannon Jetty and I, we co-founded it a few years ago, like a whole a year before the pandemic. And we wanted just to really create this movement um, and this organization to represent all the various individuals and units within the UMD College Park community, everyone who wants to come together, who has this like shared passion to look at the ways our natural landscape of our our campus arboretum and and other the recreational spaces on the campus can kind of serve as this healing space and preserve the health and well-being of everybody. So there's multiple arms that, so we have the arm where we do want to, through our health services, start to write prescriptions for students. Um, That kind of got forwarded a little bit with this pandemic. Um, And so that's kind of put on the back burner, but it was kind of a blessing in disguise because now we're actually, we've seen another similar sister school doing this, um, UC Davis. They actually have started to institute a peer program. So there's these kind of like healthcare workers who are kind of like student quasi workers. So we're going to actually probably go around the peer route because our healthcare practitioners and nurses, they're already inundated with trying to make sure we come back to campus this fall and we don't have a mini COVID outbreak. So we're probably going to use the peers, the student peers for that part. Um, another part is to increase nature education, not only understanding about nature, but understanding proper um, ways to go out in nature. Because a lot of students, they're like, well, I want to go out, but I don't know what to do once I get out there. Like, what do I plug in? Like, what what, what I do? So understanding that it's a safe space and how to have it be a safe space, proper protocols, you know, whether it's a buddy system or going out before it gets dark, proper, you know, shoes and clothing, but also understanding the therapeutic and the physical and mental health benefits, understanding that, you know, whether it boosts our immune system or whether it can reduce anxiety. So courses to teach that. So there's the education arm, prescription arm. And then there's an arm where I like to call it just a recognition, an arm of um, appreciation, an arm of tribute to recognize a couple things. So it's a land-grant institution. So to recognize the land, the original holders or um, of this land, the Piscataway people. So to recognize that this was their land that was taken from them. And then secondly, to recognize the how the institution of Maryland was built by slaves. So recognizing that these communities of color are really part of nature. We're not these communities that, or communities of color are not like separate from nature, which has kind of been a narrative that has kind of been perpetuated a little bit. So to kind of have this, I haven't worked it out, specifically, but I just want to make sure it's a it's a recognition, it's a tribute, and so that communities and students of color can see that they are a part and that they belong in nature. And I think a lot of that came out of the whole last summer issue with Christian Cooper, seeing this whole privilege of nature and these issues. And so that kind of came out to be this third arm. And then the fourth arm is just research. So Research with other colleagues, research on the campus, research on, like there's a colleague of mine, she actually did a study over the pandemic about how actually gardening increased. (laughs) People started to go outside and garden more and they were gardening because they were like, well, I'm stuck at home and also I need something to help distress. And so people started gardening more. So actually we're going to submit that paper to see how, you know, the pandemic has increased guarding, but how it's actually been beneficial for mental health. And so there's that research arm. So I guess you can see those four arms will kind of come under this Nature Rx at UMD movement organization. We're still working on the nomenclature of how we want to identify ourselves because it's still kind of in its, well, toddlerhood. It's like two years old. Well, and, and, and I see just the benefit of the fact that y'all are, are talking about this and, you know, the extended benefit of just getting outdoors. 
I mean, just getting, you know, because we can look at nature in a couple different ways. We could look at nature as in, you know, capital N nature uh, equivalent to like wilderness areas. Mm -hmm. And like this is a really, truly natural environment. But we can also look at uh, undercase in nature of just getting outdoors and starting to look at, you know, areas where like, for instance, most college campuses are are typically, you know, beautiful places, you know, for the most part mm-hmm. and typically have a lot of trees and a lot of green space areas. And so that that, you know, small in nature access to greenery uh, street trees. And so you can extend this out into, you know, our, our built environment and our communities and our neighborhoods. Do we have street trees? How important are street trees, you mm-hmm. know, in, in in terms of walkability and, you know, making an environment feel like it, you know, again, gives you that hug yes. you know, and says, you know, hey, this is a, a welcoming environment. A, a great example, too, is like uh, the built environment implementation of, say, rain gardens and uh, features that that really help support other active mobility uh, infrastructure. And the example that I'll, I'll give is a few weeks ago, I was at uh, in Indianapolis for the Walk Bike Places conference. And the Indianapolis Cultural Trail has done just a fantastic job of bringing nature elements to the, you know, the the paved trail. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, it, it was just absolutely gorgeous. You know, all the flowers were mm-hmm. in bloom and, and all of this. And you walk away going, this is such a pleasant environment. And it's softened, you know, the that hardscape built environment yeah. is softened with nature. It's not wilderness, but it's it's still yes. nature. Mm-hmm. It's so important. And 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 you just walk away from there or ride away from there if you're on your bike with this warm feeling of God, that was just so beautiful. That was just so pleasant. And, 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 you know, we, we have that, you know, Richard Louvre talked about it, you know, when he really coined the term nature deficit disorder. And Mm -hmm. we, we do have that. We, again, just like we're born to move, we also, you know, there's nothing more natural for the human than to be outside. Yes. That's the natural environment for, for homo sapiens. Definitely. And I think that, that that example you were saying with Indianapolis, bringing it to the kind of like the concrete jungle, that's so important to consider because, you know, we've seen, and I think it really, well, people, a lot of people have already known this, but it really came to surface throughout the pandemic that there's so many communities, communities of color are more likely to live in a nature gap area. And there was actually an article that came out roughly two weeks ago at New York Times that looked at patterning of areas and cities that were redlined that were less likely to have green space and greenery. Um, and you see, and they highlighted some cities, and it's interesting they highlighted. So um, I'm on vacation visiting my mom, in my, and I grew up in Buffalo, New York. And so Buffalo, New York was one of those cities that was highlighted along with Detroit and a lot of the cities from the Rust Belt area. But they show that areas that were specifically redlined are less likely to have greenery and parks and green space. And even in my own city, I see that as an example. So if you look at an old, like, 1930s redlined map of my hometown, our kind of treasured park called Delaware Park, which was landscaped by uh, Frederick Law Olmsted. It's like the beautiful park. It's in an area that was blue and green. And so you, you can even see that. I, I, I definitely see that here. And so to be able to bring some of that green and like you said, to soften it to these areas where that have these nature gaps, you know, it can really, you know, be a world of difference because there are so many people who don't have necessarily that Delaware Park within a walking distance. And when I say it came to light a lot, because I remember during the height of the quarantine, CDC had recommended to people to go out to their parks and go out and get outside. But we saw a lot of people didn't have that. And even in areas that may not be impoverished, like you could have areas in Manhattan and people live in high rises. They're like, I can't necessarily just go to a park. But if you have, whether it's a rooftop garden or some spaces that you can make a little green and soften it, you know, it can definitely give you a little bit of that dose of nature, you know, before you can go you know, off to the forest or, or what have you. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and we, and we are seeing this, you know, in, in communities uh, around the, the country that are 
really starting to understand more their nature gap situations that they have. And again, you know, in many of those exist in those historically under invested in neighborhoods and Mm -hmm. communities and, and getting creative and going, you know, Hey, we've, we've got several, uh, abandoned lots here. Let's turn them into gardens. Let's turn them into pocket parks. You know, let's do what we can, uh, you know, to really, you know, uh, again, try to soften that environment Mm -hmm. and, and, and also bring some vitality to it, you know, getting serious about planting trees, um, Mm -hmm. and, and, and try to, you know, move things along to, to give a little bit of that, that nature right outside of our door. Yeah, exactly. That nature. And even just help with some of the heat, you know, you know, everyone has been under this heat wave, you know, so to remove some of those impervious surfaces and help, you know, absorb some of that heat. So we're not all having these little mini heat islands. Cause I know some areas like where you go downtown, you're like, Oh my goodness, I'm about to melt. So like you said, the softening. So for the aesthetics, that's beautiful, but also for the cooling, bring the temperature down a couple of degrees. I think it's just a win-win. Yeah, absolutely critical on so many different levels. So is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to make sure that we uh, talk about? I think we covered quite a bit, John. We covered Nature RX, we yeah. <laughs> we covered transit. We covered. We we touched a whole on a whole lot. Well, if something else comes to mind, you just let me know and we'll have you back on to the, the podcast because this has been super, super fun. This has been. Now, my last question for you is as follows. And that is, you know, for, for those listeners out there and, you know, and who knows, maybe we have, you know, a, a few, you know, young listeners out there that are thinking about their career path and things of that nature. But, you know, who knows? But say they want to make a difference in their own lives or in their communities, in their neighborhoods. Based on your experience and your research, what would advice would you have for them? Hmm. Well, I guess a couple of things. The first about a career, not thinking that your career may be a straight linear line. You may do all these different things before you get to, don't even think of it as a destination. Just think of it as just an ongoing journey in terms of things that you want to do. And also recognize that everything doesn't always have to look the same. So you might be someone who's like, you know, I want to start, I found this pavement and I, this abandoned lot, I want to go and I want to start a garden here. Maybe you are someone who likes to do that. You'll go to, you know, talk to your political leaders so that you can get permits for that. Maybe you are the person who likes to do the talking, or maybe you're the person who wants to write the letters. Like, Understanding that there's a, a role for everyone. I have students who will say, well, I don't really like giving presentations. And like, you don't have to give presentations. You could help create the presentation for the person who's a little bit more of a ham who likes to do the presentations. You might want to do the background research. So understanding that there's a role for everyone and it doesn't have to look like everyone else's role, but every piece of the role is crucial. I always say, you know, I always make a, an example. I'm like, We all know who were the main leaders of the civil rights movement. We pretty much can name them. But there were some, I bet you there was a whole bunch of people who were cooking meals for people when they were on the road. There were people who were probably like, who went to go bail people out of prison? Who who actually went to church to say, we need to raise money to bail Martin Luther King out of prison? These are the people who we don't know about, but that's a role. That was a poor role or else he would have still been in prison. You know, like who was the one who helped John Lewis? So all these roles. And so I tell students, you know, it doesn't have to always look the same. And once you find what you're comfortable in and what your strengths are, just run with it. And also understand that it can change. It is perfectly fine. When I was doing consulting, I would have never thought that I would have gone to academia. Actually, matter of fact, when I was graduating from grad school, I said, I'm never going to academia. And then I did this 180. And so understanding that you can change and you can evolve over time and just to live life with some grace and live, give yourself understanding for things that may not go right the first time. And I feel like that in itself can help make change because I really want us to yeah. live in a very much more loving, graceful, empathetic type of world. And so I think if you do that first with yourself, it's so much easier to do with others. Yep. Never say never. You never know what might happen. Exactly. You never know. Exactly. You might be eating your words. <laughs> exactly. 
So what's the best way for folks to, to follow along with your work and the activities that you're doing there at, at the University of Maryland? Um, well, I'm on Twitter. So my Twitter page is at Active Roberts. And then my website is my full name, my full government name. I say it's JenniferDeniseRoberts.com. And those are the two easiest ways to find out what I'm doing and to reach out to me as well. Fantastic. That's great. Well, Professor Jennifer Roberts, Jen, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you here today. Thank you so much for joining me on the Active Towns podcast. Well, John, thank you so much for reaching out and inviting me, and I hope to do it again. Yeah, definitely. We'll make it happen. Okay. (laughs) Thank you all so very much for tuning into episode number 86 of the Active Towns podcast. It's so encouraging to know that we have passionate, caring, academic professionals such as Dr. Jen Roberts working hard to better understand how we can equitably transform our built environments to encourage healthy, active living. For more information on her work and the initiatives we discussed during this episode, see the links in the show notes as well as out on the landing page for this episode at activetowns.org. And one last reminder, if you're enjoying the podcast and appreciate my efforts to profile the inspiring advances happening around the globe to promote a culture of activity, please help me out by making a tax-deductible contribution to Active Towns. Each and every donation is truly appreciated and really does make a huge difference in allowing me the ability to continue producing this content. To do so, just click on the link in the show notes or go to activetowns.org and click on that bright blue donate button or navigate to the fundraising page. Thank you so very much for your support and for tuning in. That's all for this week's episode. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers.